Hello, and in today's episode of VFM, we're talking to Pensions Bees, uh, Romy Savova, about how she's trying to disrupt the pensions industry and what value for money means to her. Welcome to the 17th episode of VFM, the Pensions Podcast. And as ever, I'm delighted to be joined by my co-host, Nico Aspinall, who is currently on a working holiday in France, I understand, Nico. <laughs> yes, I am. I've been uh, digging up the floor. I've been to the Deschetterie today, uh, twice, to dump off some rubble. Uh, and of course, I couldn't be happier to be sat virtually next to you, Darren. Darren Phil. Excellent, excellent. Um, well, when you when you when you back from France? uh so in a week or so so uh, i think we're recording from france next time as well i think we are um and then uh yeah i'm lucky enough to be going to the imola grand prix as well so uh, i'm kind of not in the country in may a bit of a petrol <laughs> head then um you know you need to question your esg credentials on that nico um but anyway oh well car engines <laughs> car engines are so much dramatically more efficient because of formula one yeah yeah no, that, that is true actually so um today we're delighted to be joined by Romy Savova from Pensions B. Welcome, Romy. Thank you for having me on. Not at all, not at all. And um, we'll come on to why you founded Pensions B in a moment. But you've been CEO since uh, 2015, was it? Yes, and, pretty much. Yeah, and, and, and before that, you held a variety of different roles in the asset management sector. Yes, mostly in the banking sector, uh, but always looking at financial institutions such as banks, pension funds, asset managers and, and so on. So you're very well qualified to talk about investment and all issues to do with value for money. Mm. Well, I certainly like to talk about it. And I suppose <laughs> being in this industry for a while, I think there there is a lot to say. There, there certainly is. That certainly is. Like we're on, I think, 17th um, episode of this podcast. So we've, <laughs> we're certainly finding enough to chat about. <laughs> I don't know if our listeners would feel the same way. But anyway, uh, so some of them seem to. Some, some of them, them seem, seem to. to. <laughs> so where do we start, Nick? Well, as ever, we start with the news. And um, this week, no cheating from Darren, no chat GPT uh, filling in the blanks, please. Um, but uh, Romy, we always start uh, by giving the floor to, to our guests. So yeah, what have you brought in for us? Well, I've brought in two stories for you. Uh, the first one is one that I think is quite high profile across various publications, and it's about Capita's cyber breach and how that's potentially impacting different pension schemes. And the second story I brought is about a fire saver. Um, that's a type of saver who wants to save a very large amount in their pension and retire as soon as possible, um, possibly even in their 30s. So we can take it in any direction that you like. Wow. So um, I, I wasn't aware of the term fire saver. I'm mm. a big prodigy fan. So I know about fire starters. <laughs> um, so, um, yeah, like, why don't we start with that one, Romy? Sure. So a fire saver um, and fire is an acronym, of course, for mm. financial independence, retire early. Ah. 
Uh, and I was really interested to see uh, this story in uh, the Times Money Mentor because during a cost of living crisis, it's been really hard for many people to save. Yeah. And so it's quite um, uplifting, I think, to see some consumers uh, really doing extraordinary things to save. I think in this case, it's about as much as two thirds um, of, of their salary. And the objective here is to have saved £350,000 by the age of 38, which is, of course, an astonishing amount of money, even you know, at, at any age, um, but let alone at the at the age of 38. And I suppose it just highlights for some that motivation to, to have a happy retirement and to have it start as, as early as possible. Um, so I just thought I'd share something uplifting um, for, for us to all ponder. Well, we usually end up talking about people not saving enough, don't we, um, on mm. podcasts like this and within debates and discussions in the industry. I'm just sort of frantically looking at my um, online pensions accounts now and I can assure you that I'm nowhere near being able to retire at 38, even if I could, <laughs> because I'm now well past that. So that's a, a goal I've missed um, anyway. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, I just come back to that. You know, there is, have we totally kind of lost the ability to enjoy work? Is that the, is that the kind of conclusion here? Um, you know, there's this Japanese concept of Ikagi, which is the sort of overlap of what you like doing, what the world pays you, you know, what you're good at, um, you know, what, what is valued by society. Are we, are we now basically, we just disentangle all of that kind of reward of uh, society and, and kind of contribution that comes from work and we just go off, uh, you know, the, the desire is just to, to kind of disconnect. It, it, it feels slightly sad to me, Romy, feels sad. Well, I think for most people, retirement is not the end. Um, retirement is really a new beginning. And a lot of people will continue working well into retirement, mm. whether that's um, you know in, in part-time work or whether it's in alternative um, full-time work. But it's really that concept of financial freedom, I think, that, that stands out quite, uh, quite boldly in, in this case. It's the ability to work and do whatever it is that you absolutely want to do and I, I think it is quite empowering and of course we have to also consider that many people will have caring responsibilities yeah. as well mm. um which it's important to to bundle into our approach to considering a working life mm. oh, very good very yeah good. that's a great story but um so cybercrime it's been quite topical hasn't it mm. yeah so what happened what happened well, it seems that there has been a cyber breach at one of the UK's largest pension administrators. Um, now, Capita is, of course, not only a pensions administrator, uh, it's a provider of various outsourcing agreements to many large companies and also to, to the government. Um, so over the last couple of weeks, we've had a steady drumbeat of news around what seems to have been a cyber breach uh, resulting in the data of individuals being compromised. Um, and of course, that could very well impact uh, different pension trustees. Um, it seems that the pensions regulator and the FCA have both written uh, two pension providers and two pension trustees to investigate the impact that this may have had um, on the pension members that they are responsible for. And I suppose, um, you know, like 
the whole thing about cyber crime and security that you know it's, it's like the pension scams isn't it that you know people are getting more and more sophisticated at trying to hack systems and um, cause disruption and it just shows what a challenge um, everyone's got to keep their data safe and secure and their their systems watertight absolutely and i think that there is a lot also um certainly that consumers can do to to keep themselves safe uh, of course having very difficult to crack passwords uh, not reusing passwords mm. across different sites making sure that you have two-factor authentication set up across uh, all of your uh, all of your apps um and and just i suppose ensuring that you know, you uh, are very proactive about your online security because it seems that cyber breaches will only be increasing. Yeah, no, I think um, I think that's right. And um, I think like anything, um, there's always lessons to be learned and there's always improvements to be made. And, and in a way, that's the, if, if there is a silver lining and if there is something to good um, that comes out of this is that, you know, there'll be a continued investment in systems and increased resilience to such threats. Which can, only, which can only be a good thing for consumers longer term. But this is something you can't reduce cyber risk to zero, can no. you? Um, so uh, this must be, you know, keeping up every, every, I don't know what it is, chief information officer, you know, late into the night. Yeah. Um, it must be one of those things. I guess the, the objective is to make it so difficult for you to be hacked that the, the cyber criminal moves on as opposed to, you know, making making the walls impenetrable. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I think Go it's on. also about taking an approach to cyber risk as business as usual risk uh, because of the prevalence um, of cyber security breaches. Uh, I think that every business needs to treat it much in the same way as they do other ongoing activity. Um, whether that's doing ongoing penetration testing uh, or whether that is subscribing to services that can uh, help detect intrusion and vulnerabilities. Uh, I think that, you know, these types of programs need to be built into the way that companies operate on a daily basis. Mm. Yeah, no, good point. Yeah, and if it isn't, if it isn't top of the risk register, it should, it should certainly be pretty much up there, shouldn't it? So um, I'm going to I'm going to go next, if that's okay, Nico. Mm, uh, because because yeah. I was reading a, an article in Pensions Age um, about um, an FOI request, freedom of information request that Quilter uh, made into uh, the government, um, which was talking about less than a third of pension scams are passed to police, and Quilter are urging the government to do more. So um, on average, just over a quarter. Of pension fraud reports are sent to police for investigation. Um, the numbers have changed over time. So um, it, uh, a few years ago it was quite low and it is increasing. Um, also I think action fraud as part of the FOI re release confirmed that while some losses can run into the millions, the average loss to each victim is around 70,000 or 75,000 um, pounds, although mm. it's quite difficult to calculate such a figure. And it just shows that there's still a long way to go in the in the battle against scams. Um, and I know people like Margaret Stoden and the uh, Pensions Industry Scams Group are fighting a you know a really good battle to make people aware of scams and stuff. But there's still a big problem out there. 
Yeah. So, and, and sorry, what, what number was that? A quarter? Yeah, are, just, are reported. just over a quarter um, of pension fraud reports are sent to for police investigation. Yeah, and I just wonder if that speaks to distrust of the police uh, as much as anything else. I don't know how that compares to other forms of financial crime or, or you know, broader crime. Um, but, but I suspect there's in there is some belief that the police are going to do nothing with it. Um, and having reported various things to the police uh, in Islington, and <laughs> I think I've got a hit ratio of like the police turning up once out of five different things I called 999 for, you know, I, I can sort of see why. Yeah. Well, hopefully that's about to change. Um, of course, we heard yesterday that the government is setting up a new approach to tackling fraud. Yep. Um, which will start with the cold call ban on all financial mm. services products, uh, but also, I think, greater firepower in terms of investigating uh, different frauds and scams, um, which will hopefully create some deterrence um, amongst what appear to be very sophisticated criminals uh, targeting, you know, quite vulnerable consumers. Yeah. Um, yeah, I saw the, um, the the fraud report and the the, the cold calling ban because we've had a cold calling ban on pensions for a while now, haven't we? Um, but it's good to see that uh, being extended to financial products right across the piece. Absolutely. Excellent. So, Nico, um, what have you got for us? Have you got a French a pension story? Uh, so, no, I don't, Darren, but um, I can say we went to uh, a little chateau over the weekend and uh, actually on May Day on the on the first and there was a, a, a strike um, protest which which set off from beneath the foots of this chateau. Right. Um, so so they went into town and I think protested uh, having to work beyond 62. Um, how the French live. Uh, no. So my story was going to be. Um, well, it's a it's a. It's a, it's a story which I guess we should uh, we should one of these days decide whether we're in or out on CDC as a as a scope of this podcast. Um, and I know we've got Adrian Boulding coming up, and, uh, and and so maybe the answer is in. Um, but there is a, a PNI pension investment story um, which has the rather alluring title of UK multi-employer plans want to join in on collective defined contribution. Um, and so I was I was attracted by that headline. Um, and then later realised that I'd actually I actually gave a quote for this story. Oh, did you? Um, well, yeah. <laughs> so um, I think I think the headline probably overstates the content. Um, it's uh, so and so I I was interviewed by Paulina uh, for the story, which was essentially who on earth wants this CDC thing. Um, and we, we talked around it a lot and uh, said, well, look, eventually decumulation, when you're a master trust, there, there might be some interest there. Um, and there's a few other people. Obviously, there's the sort of usual, usual suspects who have got the it's twice as twice as valuable than DC type uh, hubris. Um, and, uh, you know, so the usual names are quoted on that kind of um, frothing at the mouth excitement for CDC stuff. Um, but yeah, so there's a few more nuanced people such as myself going like, yeah, you know, there might be a space for it post retirement. Um, but so yeah, the, the, the headline kind of really, uh, really goes a little bit further, I think, than the content. Um, but certainly, maybe when Adrian comes on in a week or two, we can uh, we can kick the tires of exactly CDC post-retirement, CDC pre-retirement. You know, what is it good for? It's a it's an interesting debate uh, to be having, and uh, the thing I like about the debate 
um, is that we're looking to innovate and explore different ways of doing things. Um, mm. And that's not to say necessarily one form of way of doing things is right uh, versus another. Um, but, you know, creating that space for innovation and having that discussion has got to be a good thing. Do, do, you, think, do you think CDC will ever have legs, Romy? Well, I think it could work in some circumstances. Mm. Uh, but I think one would have to be quite bold um, to to move ahead with it because essentially it's a little bit like a guarantee except when it's not a guarantee um, and I think that that creates a lot of different challenges uh, within within the market and a lot of you know I suppose less clear-cut approaches to management unlike what you have in DC yeah I suppose it's um it's a lot of it's about clear communication um, because yeah. you know you, it, presenting stuff as an income even if it's a target income it does create that anchor it creates that expectation with individuals and getting mm. the communications right and um, making sure that um, the CDC schemes of the future aren't promise over promising and under delivering is going to be absolutely crucial for the long-term success on this yes yeah. of course and the solution to the communication somehow always ends up being um a load of giant risk warnings oh, no. uh, which you know i think in and of themselves can be quite off-putting to to consumers well but we, yeah. the evidence suggests that people just don't read that stuff it turns people yeah. off you know it's better yeah. to get people to read a short amount and understand it rather than just um you know, rely on um, legal disclosures to to get you out of trouble with the regulator down the road. Mm. I mean, so so, so for, for me, CDC, you know, there's 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 kind of no good outcome in pensions, right? So so all of the designs are kind of equally bad, and they all have slightly different kind of failings. So the issue on on communication, you're just never going to communicate to a member who has to. Uh, understand what a DB scheme is, understand what a DC scheme is, and understand what a CDC scheme is. So, so having three kind of main routes through the pensions forest is just how scammers thrive. So, you know, CDC just cannot by itself make any kind of dent would be my scent. What we need is a government who says, look, this is how pensions work in this country, and just pick one. And then we'll put everyone onto that same basis, uh, and then, because we were talking, um, uh, actually, in, in I can't remember when I was talking to Australians about uh, their system, but, you know, essentially the sense that you've got, oh, it was with Joe Cumber, of course, it last was. week. Last week. Um, how time flows. I'm in a whole different country and uh, <laughs> mode of being at the moment. But, uh, you know, that sense that you've just got one system, you, you're able to make it entirely portable so people can build loyalty and understanding of the interface that they've got. And they talk about their pensions over the dinner table. Mm. You know, these sort of communications coming from the ivory tower of your pensions provider. You know, obviously, we've got Romy on the call. You, you'll, you'll be doing this better than most, right? Um, but it is still landing in a complex environment where I've got all sorts of other things to weigh up. And the, my neighbor has a whole different kind of set of challenges. My parents had a whole different set of challenges again. 
And all of that complexity of societal pensions is like a UK problem, I think, pretty much exclusively. So I just, I just think it's not about the design. It's, it's about the government actually wanting to, to stop kind of this comp competition between designs and just, you know, put your money where your mouth is. Where, what do you think we should have government? Um, and what they want is value for money and a complex tax code and, you know, scammers rule, right? Oh, sounds awful. I mean, I am obviously a huge fan of simplicity and keeping pensions as simple as possible. I mean, our mission is literally to make pensions simple. So mm. I, I fully subscribe to, to the idea of having better financial awareness and education for mm. everyone alongside a set of principles that works universally. I think with automatic enrollment, we, we can actually get close because of course, the vast majority of working people will be automatically enrolled and will be benefiting from 8% contributions, uh, kind of footnote on qualifying earnings. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, and, and hopefully that will go up to 10 and then 12%, which means that under a DC system, we do have a chance of making sure that people who are enrolled through their lifetime are appropriately provided for by the time they retire. Mm. Mm. Well, yeah, and I, and I think um, we, we, we chatted a couple of weeks ago about the IFS launching um, a pensions review. And I know mm. you had some thoughts, Nico, about whether it was appropriate just for the IFS to be doing that. Um, I, I think with any pensions review, you need to have that wider built up consensus and sort of that you know wider stakeholder engagement um but it does feel like um we're getting to the point where we just need to take a step back and consider how this stuff all fits together um like the the removal of the lta which we've also talked about you know is that yep. going to be reversed in a couple of years time what does it mean for the future of pensions tax relief you know these are all big questions that will massively impact on how people save and plan for their retirements mm. But, we, but, but we've got Romy, yeah, and I know Romy's trying to do something about this. So, Romy, how did you get into pensions? Well, um, I, like many people, had a pension and was enrolled through my workplace into the workplace scheme. Um, this was at a time when I was working at Morgan Stanley. Right. And I left my job to go to a different company. And on the way out, I wanted to move my pension. The reason I wanted to move it is because before automatic enrollment, I had been enrolled in a different pension. Right. And actually, when I left the employer and I didn't move my money, I ended up losing the employer's contribution. Now, that, of course, is now no longer legal. Um, but at the time, it was, and it had created the sense of worry for me, which is why I wanted to move my, my Morgan Stanley pension. Mm. And so having covered the financial services sector for many years, I thought I knew exactly what to do and who to call. Uh, and I tried some of the big uh, pension providers, the ones with very, very large brands, and actually nobody wanted to help me out. Um, everyone insisted that I try and find a different provider um, or that I try and get a financial advisor. So I left my number on a number of financial advice websites and nobody called me back for about three years. Um, so at, at that point though, 
I had made my way onto one of the large investment platforms that offers several thousand different investment options mm. and um, managed to fill out the paper forms, which I, as a financial services professional, found really complicated. And of course, wasted a couple of hours printing them out, figuring them out, taking them to the post office, um, acted as the middle person between the old scheme um, and the new scheme. And then finally, my money made it over. Um, it got invested in a fund that I had chosen from the several thousand different options available to me. And then a couple of months later, I got the paper statement, um, which told me that a lot of the value in the pension fund had been lost. So the fund actually went down at a time that markets generally were going up. Uh, and I realized that I'd paid a huge amount of fees. Um, and of course, I was a financial services professional. I was trying to do my best, um, but also I wanted to get this job done um, to make sure that I had control and oversight of my, my pension. Um, and along the way, it was just so incredibly difficult to get anything done. And it was really easy to make mistakes. Yeah. And so it became really clear to me that because of automatic enrollment, because most employed individuals will have a pension from their employer, that it's incredibly important to set up a service, set up a way of doing things that can help people to combine those old workplace pensions if they don't want to leave them where they are and end up with good outcomes. Um, and so that is very much the, the mission that we've been on for uh, almost a decade now. I remember when um, you first launched, actually, because I think I was at People's Pension at the time. And um, yeah, it was um, the bees are coming. Um, <laughs> are, are they going to sting us? Um, no, not at all. Um, so you, 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 you founded uh, Pensions B. Yeah. Um, How has it gone so far? Well, we've been met with a lot of consumer demand because of some of the structural, I suppose, disadvantages of the system that we've discussed. Uh, a lot of the system relies on inertia. Um, it, relies on, it relies on consumers not being engaged. And yet the most fundamental thing to understand about our pension system is that it's the individual who is responsible for their retirement. Um, and they are the ones that actually need to ensure um, that they understand where they are on their savings journey and what they need to do to get closer to their retirement point. And that's just the reality of the system today. Mm. So yeah. we've we've had a lot of success. We've grown very rapidly. Um, we have about 3.4 billion in assets under administration. Um, we serve around 200,000 invested customers. Um, and as we see it, there are still a lot of people with pension problems that we want to help. Um, and so we see a lot of opportunity to continue doing more and, and growing more within the UK. And it must have been um, exciting. So congratulations on your success mm, so far, yeah. I have to say. Um, that's impressive from a, from a standing start. And, um, you know, if you look at some of the other master trusts in this space, you know, they would have similar assets under management, but with auto-enrolment and people auto-enrolling into the schemes as well. So you're have, obviously having to work additionally hard to get people engaged and, you know, to get, to get the business in. So you must be really, really proud of that. Um, one thing I did want to pick up on, though, was, you know, starting a new business from scratch. Um, 
sort of know this myself actually um <laughs> but uh, but the um but you, that blank sheet of paper that you've got to, to do things right and um, we were chatting in our pre-call about the fact that you know you've got a zero gender pensions gap within your staff you've got a zero gender pay gap and it just means you can build your company um in your vision and um you know to, to achieve the right things from the start um could you yeah. say tell us a bit about that and that experience yeah absolutely i think there are definitely advantages of starting from scratch and kind of starting as you mean to go on um as 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 i look at it and certainly aspects around culture around you know your gender pay gap those are decisions that businesses make mm. um a business decides whether it should tolerate a gender pension gap and in our case we have decided not to tolerate that um, and so it, it does mean being quite proactive because I think there can, of course, be societal challenges that make the likelihood of pay gaps more, you know, frankly, more likely. Yeah. So it means being deliberate. It means being very conscious that you have gender balance uh, across different management levels. I think it means being quite proactive in the way that you recruit. It means being quite proactive in the way that you measure internally um, and aim to address um, kind of any any shortcomings that, that, that may be present. Mm. And I think if you as a leadership team really prioritize that level of equality, then it translates into the behaviors of other teams um, across the across the company. So you know we we are very proud of the fact that we are a, a gender balanced employer across uh, all levels of seniority, um, and we hope that you know more companies will will continue to do that because ultimately. Women are 50% of the population, 50% of the workforce, and there's absolutely no reason why women should be consistently paid less than men. Hmm. And right, so, Romy, how big is your how big's the workforce now? How many people have you got? We are at 200. Wow! Wow! Fantastic! Um, and you have offices, or you're you're not uh, so modern that you're all kind of working from home. <laughs> well, we do enable a lot of remote working. We have our mm -hmm. central London office, um, where in-office employees can go on a daily basis, and I'm certainly one of those. Uh, but we also enable our team to work from anywhere around the country. Um, and what we do is we ensure that our technology is able to accommodate efficient working um, from, you know, from, from wherever you are. I remember um, walking past your offices probably about a year ago, Romy, and um, I didn't know where your offices were at that time. I think I'd been to some <laughs> other ones. And um, I think you and Claire were banging on the window. And Claire gave me a call saying, oh, are you ignoring us? And they dragged me in, <laughs> they, they dragged me in off the street, Nikkei, to have a chat. <laughs> um, and then last, last non-VFM question. Um, so uh, you sponsor Brentford Football Club. We do. We are the pension sponsor. And so do you get... Do you get to go? Are you, do you have like a box there as a result? Are you, uh, you've been following their amazing season? I have absolutely been following. I can say that I was a huge football follower before we became the sponsor, but I've gotten very into it. And I think it really helps that my six-year-old um, is absolutely uh, football mad. 
um, and <laughs> will happily spend um, every waking moment that he has kicking a ball or talking about football or, or doing anything football related. So um, I, I, I found that passion alongside him, I would say. <laughs> and, 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 I've, I've got to ask, who does he support? He supports Brentford. <laughs> oh, that is the right answer. That is the right answer. No problem. Uh, right. So, Romy, what does value for money mean to you? Well, I am actually quite pleased with the government's value for money consultation. I think it does a good job of balancing what I believe are the three components of value for money. Um, investment performance is incredibly important um, and so absolutely has to be measured. Um, but I also do believe that within the UK, um, our asset allocations within DC um, are not too dissimilar um, from, from one another. So I would expect that the range of performance and some reversion to the mean, um, certainly within DC pensions to, to continue occurring. So I do think investment performance is important. I think costs and charges are really important as well. Um, costs and charges are, you know, it, it's of course the only thing, um, well, one of the only things that, that you can actually control um, within pension saving. And so it's important for charges to be reasonable. Um, but I'm certainly not a kind of subscriber to the fact that charges have to be at the absolute bottom because the cost of that is really poor service. And I think that we can see that across the pension sector now. There are definitely pension providers out there where if you try and call them as a consumer, and, and you know we hear about this a lot, you can sit on hold for well over an hour. Um, in some cases, the phone call doesn't even get picked up. You get dropped. Um, emails aren't replied to. It takes you know weeks to receive a letter-based response, sometimes to the wrong address. Um, and of course, transactions are not processed on time. Um, it can take kind of you know days to um, to to do simple things, and in some cases months to do transfers, um, as we are, are well aware. So I think that, you know, the three components of investment performance, cost and service really do balance what pension administrators and providers should be achieving in order to create value for money for consumers. And, and one of the things that we have picked up on in the podcast is this, um, the, the phasing um, approach to the DWP's proposals. So um, decumulation or at retirement and uh, retail being excluded for phase one. Um, do you have any views on that, Romy? I see no reason why it should be excluded. I think that consumers deserve to be able to compare their pensions. And so, you know, we we don't see why that's the case. I suppose that there will be some pension providers out there who have probably um, pushed back uh, to have, you know, uh, retail pensions, as you call them, kind of included in, in phase two. But, you know, from from our perspective, we see no reason why they shouldn't be part of phase one. And having that comparability across the market can can only be a good thing. And how so, you... so, Romy, yeah, let, let me dive in there. So, so just on the so obviously the VFM for the workplace is focused on the default. So just I, I, I don't know enough about your proposition, but is there like a default that, that, that people have? 
Yes, so within um, non-workplace pensions, um, as the FCA calls them, there are actually incoming regulations that will require all pension providers, all non-workplace pension providers to, to have a default. Um, we have already implemented one um, and we expect everyone else to, to have to do the same. Um, I think the regulations come in towards the end of this year. Mm -hmm. So that would be what you put into the value for money assessment, essentially? Yes, I, I think that it should be done on all products, actually. I don't think it should be restricted to the default because while the default represents the majority um, of assets for any pension provider, there are, of course, other options. And as we have seen over the past 10 years, um, it's not just defaults that need to be well managed. It's the additional options that sit alongside the mm -hmm. defaults as well. Yeah. Uh, sorry, Darren, go on, go on. No, I, I was just going to pick up on a, on a similar theme, but um, just, just, just building on that. Um, how do we make sure that the comparison is fair? Um, because if you go to someone like Pensions B, then, yeah, you might pay a bit more for good service. And you've been very open about that, Romy. Um, you know, you're not having to spend an hour uh, waiting on the phone for your call to be answered. It's like ringing up HMRC, isn't it? Um, oh, but, but, you know, so... But, but, but how do you get that sort of true and fair comparison um, when ultimately quite a lot of what the DWP are trying to do is give a really, really objective and measurable approach? Well, I think good service absolutely can and should be measured. Um, and there are already some proposals um, within the consultation, but I think that we can definitely build on those. And certainly in my discussions with the DWP, um, I've shared some thoughts on, you know, what good service could could look like. So, you know, there are a couple of different areas that I think need to be examined. I think one which is already well considered within the consultation is transaction length. So how long does it take to process contributions, fund switches, transfers in, transfers out, payment of benefits, payment of death benefits, etc. Um, and these are, of course, um, you know, some might say that those are the basics, but actually you would be surprised um, at how many pension providers are absolutely taking their time, um, you know, processing basic transactions on time. So I think that that's certainly one area where we can be quite objective and you can actually define a start and an end time. Um, and I don't think you should be stopping the clock. And um, I think I think as well on that, it's it's making sure things like SLAs are comparable. Uh, because you might have SLAs or a provider might has, have SLAs with a with a, a TPA or a third party administrator. But if your F SLAs are all specified in a different way, it's very, very mm. difficult to do that proper compare and contrast because yeah, you're basically measuring different things. Sure, but from the consumer's perspective, they don't really care about the SLAs or, or the way that they're structured. No. They care that they're able to do the jobs that, that they want to do. And so I think that you should look at this from a consumer's perspective and think, well, if I'm a consumer and I want to, you know, put money into my pension, you know, how long does it take for me to make that request? Or yeah. if I want to nominate a beneficiary, how long does it take for me to make that request by the time, you know, I requested to happen um, and the time that it is actually updated on the system and I can mm. see that so I think we should approach these um, quantification challenges from from the customer's perspective mm. um, the, the other sorry go on go on go on no, no, no. 
Well, I think the, the other area that we can certainly look at is around, you know, around response times and, you know, things like waiting times, because those actually have a very direct financial impact on consumers. Mm. Um, if you are spending an hour of your time uh, on hold to a pension provider um, and, you know, your um, hourly pay uh, is, you know, I don't know, take 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 a reasonable number 15 pounds an hour um or, or something like that then i think that that time wasted effectively trying to get a job done with your pension provider um is is quite a direct cost on a person so i think we should absolutely be measuring you know phone waiting times email response times um and other um, I suppose requirements that place undue burden on people to stop their daily lives um, and deal with pension administration. And, and you made a bit of a start on this, didn't you? Because I remember this from when you first started up that you created a Robin Hood index. Um, do you remember that? I do remember that. Which is all about your campaign on on transfer times, and so so so, and, and really some of this is just a continuation of that. That ultimately you identify what the key. Um, things are uh, from a customer service point of view and you do it from a, a consumer's perspective then you you get alignment in terms of how you measure that um, and then transparency is the answer everyone should yeah, publish absolutely. this on a website absolutely I think it should it should all be made public I think at the moment it's really difficult for consumers to compare um, the service the costs but also the performance um, that they get on their pensions. And I suppose I feel that, you know, we are very willing to invest the time in making sure that we can standardize our measures of performance, where frankly, I think there are a lot of, you know, a, a lot of hidden areas um, where one could make the figures kind of look different, um, you know, from uh, the classification of transaction costs to the incorporation of employer subsidies, um, to the incorporation um, of, uh, you know, kind of invoiced fees or embedded fees within the funds to the creation of derivatives that can reduce the cost um, appearance. So I think we are very happy to invest the time in making sure that those measures are standardized. And we should be equally happy to invest the time in, in making sure that service measures um, are standardized because they have a very direct impact on a consumer's valuable time. So, so Romy, the, the, the current frame of the consultation is that the thing that makes um, the thing that you're measuring in value uh, is just the pensions outcome. So it is just uh, how much has accumulated uh, and you know, you know multiplied by by the returns. And the only point that you're looking at service uh, and engagement is to argue that those increase that final number. So I guess this is where you know, Darren and I have been slightly controversial and, and slightly misunderstood maybe on this kind of retail versus institutional framing, where I kind of think, you know, that, that, that setting up a measure of value for money, which basically believes that people are defaulting and inertia, means that that workplace thing is always going to be better than places which believe that you need to engage to improve your outcomes. So how would you kind of you know, if you if you want to be in phase one for the, the scope of the value for money consultation, so so you guys are going to have to explain why engagement leads to better outcomes. So what, what do you think your response is, is there? 
Well, I think that's a really good point that you raise because, you know, what we've discussed so far is kind of the direct financial cost to consumers from poor service. And, you know, you, you will know that the financial um, ombudsman and also the pensions ombudsman is very happy to quantify that as well. So we know that there is a direct cost to consumers of, of poor service. Um, I think the other aspect that we need to to consider is, of course, the outcome within the pension itself. Um, and of course, what we know from our customers and, and from their behavior and their engagement is that the more engaged you are, um, the simpler you make it for a consumer to be engaged and to do you know, what it is that they want to do, the more likely they are to make additional contributions. Um, and I think you can quite simply see that if you frustrate someone so much by not picking up the phone and not replying to their emails and not processing their transactions on time, they are highly unlikely to make additional contributions into their pension. I mean, why would they? In some cases, people find it so hard to even set up the contribution in the first place. Mm. You know, they complain, I'm trying to give you money. Um, why are you making this so, so difficult? So. I think that there is a very clear case to be made that if you make things simple, engaging and consumer friendly, that people are likely to contribute more. And, you know, I think that that really does recognize the reality of the current pension system, which is one that the default level of contributions, which is 8% of qualifying earnings, um, is not really going to get people close to a happy retirement. And yes, it would be wonderful if we lived in a world where default contributions were, you know, 12 or even 15%, which is the recommended rate, but that's simply, you know, not where we are. And even if we were there, there is going to be a whole generation of people who, who won't reap the benefit of that because in some ways it's, it's a bit late. And, and so we do have to be conscious of the fact that contributions matter um, and helping people to make those contributions, to encourage them to make the contributions, to help them see the value in making the contribution is key. And, and of course, you can quantify that. Yep. So I, and, and I think that that, you know, that absolutely should be done. But if you were to take an example of someone saving for, you know, say, say 20 years, uh, and that person was saving um, into a pension scheme, and, and let's pick a really low number, let's say they're saving into a pension scheme that costs, I don't know, 10 basis points, so 0.1%. And let's assume kind of standard performance of, you know, sort of 5% returns per year. That person is actually worse off than the same person saving into a pension and let's say they're only saving 20 pounds a month um, into a pension, which I think is infinitely doable for most people, um, that person uh, in, in the scheme where they are not adding extra contributions is worse off than the person who is adding 20 pounds a month and is paying, let's say, 75 basis points, which is, of course, the, the current charge cap. So I think that there is a very, very direct impact of being able to encourage people to make contributions because ultimately we care about what people retire with um, and that they can have a happy retirement. I think we all, that's what we all want. So, so you would definitely argue for measurement of increasing contributions in, in, the, in the phase one of DWP's proposals because you, can, you, because you track that already, I'm assuming. 
We do track that already. Yes, I think we'd be quite supportive of that. Yeah. But the, I don't think those contributions are in scope uh, of, of the current concept, right? So because it, because essentially we've disentangled, uh, and this is where Henry's coming from as well. Mm. You know, we we've sort of taken the member out of this this discussion. Um, so we're just looking at performance. Um, yeah. So those contributions, I. I, I think Sorry. we should be looking at the customer's experience and what the customer gets at the end of this. And it's infinitely better for them to make even small contributions um, if, if they well, can. Well, in terms of pension outcome. Absolutely. Right. So it's because this is where the fire people, the fire savers, you fire know, starters, it could, fire starters, the fire starters. <laughs> <laughs> it, it could be that they're making poor financial decisions trying to retire at 38. That, that could be a terrible financial decision. Um, it may be if you look through the frame of pensions, you're a superstar. But if you look through the frame of the frame of like having any other life goals, it could be disastrous, right? Um, yeah, I think we're just focused on pensions here, and I think the numbers tell a very clear story, which is that you know it is better to have a pension scheme where you pay even twenty pounds a month um, than it is to you know to, to have an equivalent um, you know pension scheme where you don't pay in and, and you pay lower costs. Right, but the the whole issue with the defaulting of contribution rates is we sort of don't know, and uh, you know, there's lots of debates here, right? So, so there's a sort of belief in certainly in the government and policy sort of environments that we should be dropping the age, dropping the um, the band earnings, the lower threshold, uh, because somehow you know, despite the fact that you're picked up by state pension, you should be contributing to a pension. Um, and having a massive replacement ratio uh, at, at retirement, right? So, so by having a default contribution rate, we've already made some assumptions about, uh, you know, what the kind of right inverted commas level of contributions to 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 frame at are, right? Um, so the, this is this is very difficult, isn't it? This is there's, there's there's sort of no one size fits all answer. And I was sort of expecting you, Romy, to take us down a sort of line of saying, well, look, you know, there is no one size fits all answer. And therefore, as you engage, you get to tailor. And as you get to tailor, you get to realize you need to make more contributions or potentially less contributions. Um, and that is part of the value add. And I agree it's sort of missing from the from the consultation. Right? Um, yeah, I but, think we should be objective about all of these measures. I think they can all be absolutely quantified and I think they can all be absolutely compared and then i think consumers should have the choice of what it is that you know that, that that they actually prefer but but so for me can we possibly be objective if we've said that the system needs to work for someone who never engages until maybe months before retirement right so so if that is the framework and then you put alongside a framework which says this person should be engaged the whole time right and the answer by the way is sort of both right mm -hmm. um, Right. So, so, but you, can you can we be objective about those two different worlds? You know, uh, Nest is from Mars. You guys are from Venus. Type worlds. How on earth do you straddle those in commas objectively? Well, I think we have to recognize the real world, and and the real world is one where automatic enrollment exists. People move jobs. Um, you know, they're, they're not saving enough into pensions by default. And so, if you live in 
the real world, I think that you do need the kind of solution that helps people to navigate the real world and, and still have a happy retirement. And I think if we ever get to the point where, you know, contributions are, are 15%, um, then, you know, I, I think we, we will probably and potentially have, have different conversations, but we have to solve the problems that people have today. Um, and, and that's something that I feel really strongly about because ultimately it's it's those people who are gonna have, who are going to have the retirements that they end up with through this system. Mm -hmm. We're coming to the end of our time now. It's amazing how quickly these things <laughs> go when we're having interesting conversations and um, really interesting to, to hear what you've got to say, Romy, and, and, and your experiences. Um, one, one, of the, um, one of the things I've, I've always thought about is, um, you know, how best to consolidate pensions. Um, and I always look at the Australian system and think, wouldn't it be great if someone could take their pension with them? Yes, and what I mean by that is not a sort of pop follows member to a new provider, but to say, let's take a random provider, uh, for, uh, for, for example, say, say I was um, auto-enrolled into a pension with Pensions B, yeah, or I had a pension with Pensions B, and then I went to another um, another employer. You know, should I be able to ask that employer to direct my contributions um, to the scheme that I'm currently with or the provider I'm currently with? Well, my answer to that, of course, is absolutely yes because then it would create the kind of system where everyone is competing on the basis of what it is that you know consumers ultimately value. Um, and again, as, as they are the ones that are responsible for having a good retirement, I think that that basis of, of competition is really important. Mm. And um, one of the criticisms that has been levied at the Australian system is that okay, um, it's all about getting new business and it's all about um, keeping that business from, um, or, or taking business of competitors. And there was the Royal Commission and the, the retail versus institutional debate that went on in, in Australia. You know, how, how would you counter some of that? Well, I think that, again, you know, we are working for people. We are, we are working for consumers. And so I think in all markets, you know, that, that we have consumer choice, um, is something that is that is very important. And I think that the government and the regulator are, are responsible for making sure that that market works effectively and transparency and having very clear disclosures around performance and costs and service is definitely something that can, you know, that can get the market working efficiently while enabling people to, to have that choice. And we've only had auto-enrollment, you know, for, um, for about 10 years. So we, what we will increasingly see, and I think many of us are, are seeing it already, um, is that people are increasingly caring about their pensions. Mm. We can see the word pension trending as a Google term um, and increasingly going upwards. Um, we can have various conversations, whether it's at the hairdresser um, or whether it's you know, with a friend or, or, or with a colleague about our pensions. Soon these, you know, these are conversations that will become prevalent for everyone. And so enabling people to have those conversations and, and to make the right choices for themselves. Um, and of course, regulating where bad actors, um, you know, where they, we've talked a lot about scams and cyber in this case, you know, regulating against those kinds of actors that, that absolutely should happen. That's the government and, and the regulators jobs. But ultimately we should still be enabling consumers to be empowered with their pensions because 
they're responsible for their retirements. Yeah, we do. We do need more competition in the pension sector, and I think um, you know one of the one of the problems with auto enrolment um, for all its successes, and I'm a big fan of auto enrolment, as people will know, um, is that the business is very sticky. Um, so once an employer's made their choice, um, it's very unlikely that they're going to move unless they have really, really poor service or a really, really bad experience. Um, and just making sure that the buy side of pensions, whether that's institutional level at the employer or retail level at the individual, remains strong is has got to be absolutely crucial to my mind. Right. <laughs> so on that on that bombshell, Darren. That's not a bombshell. <laughs> That's not a bombshell. So I'm just looking at the um, the the football league table. So Brentford, fifty points. <laughs> That's uh, you know that's uh, that's a par for an age wage score. So maybe um, maybe next year if you get above fifty, then um, you'll be in positive return territory according to Mister. <laughs> but no, but I think Brentford is, are doing very very well. <laughs> mm, yeah yeah yeah. Excellent. Well, uh, so we're both uh, we're both Arsenal fans, Remy. So oh um, my gosh, I believe I believe it's right that so obviously they've been back up in the Premier League for two seasons now. The last game, I think potentially the game that relegated them in the 30s or the 40s was was against Arsenal. Oh, was it? Um, and then the first game back uh, was against Arsenal. I, I don't know if the Premier League guys knew this as well. Uh, and of course, Brentford beat Arsenal 3-0. This was they the did. beginning of a terrible season last year. <laughs> uh, so, uh, yeah, that's uh, a little... We were the bookends of the, the, the kind of years in the wilderness. Um, so, so yeah, I hope uh, uh, Brentford can, can stay out for a long time and your, your sponsorship can be on global screens uh, for many years to come. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> so we're doing uh, this virtually today, Nico. Um, so we're not yeah. in our usual pod, but thanks as ever to DG Publishing for hosting us where we when we are there in person. And as we've mentioned before, um, we, we're both speaking at their DC Strategic Summit on Monday the 15th of May. Yeah, um, it's coming and we'll close. Talking, and we'll be talking about value for men, money on that as well, won't we? Uh, I believe so. <laughs> it seems to be our topic, isn't it? <laughs> it, it does, yeah, it does. Um, so an, another fantastic episode. Um, remember, you'll find us on your plot platform of choice and don't forget you can get in touch at vfmpensions at gmail.com um, give us any feedback and um, let us know if you'd like to be a guest in the future uh, thank you to Romy for joining us today and sharing your views thank you yeah no really insightful Romy really enjoyed uh, chatting and glad to hear that things are going well and yeah, next week we're, uh, next week we're speaking to Rona Train from Hyman's Robertson and then we've got Brian Henderson from Mercer and many others coming up as well. We do. So Looking forward to that. <laughs> yeah, and, and until next time, it's bye from me. Uh, it's bye from me and Romy. Bye, everyone.